Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. The main event then, the G7 and leaders meeting today and Saturday and what's shaping up to be the most divisive gathering of leaders from major industrialised nations in years. I'm really pleased to say that joining us from Canada is Andrew Barden, Bloomberg's European government reporter. Andrew, just walk me through the issues on the table and why this could be so contentious over the next 24 hours. Good morning. Look, there's, there's really only one issue on the table that that uh, matters is um, obviously the, the the trade war. Though though they're scheduled to talk about other things, they've invited a few emerging markets here. They'll talk about terror. They'll talk about cybercrime. It's really all about uh, about trade. And, and as you said, you know they're setting the table, and it and it's not looking good. You had Macau come out and saying. Um, you know, uh, we have no problem signing an agreement with only six countries if we need to be. Uh, we, have, we have May saying there would be a measured proportional response. Trump then comes out and in a very personal attack on Trudeau, accuses him of being so indignant. Um, and and uh, 37 minutes ago, uh, tweeted that um, he was looking forward to straightening out unfair trade deals with G7 countries. And if that doesn't happen, well, in, from his perspective, the U.S. will come out even stronger. So, you know, you would sort of expect before a meeting like this to have conciliatory comments, to have uh, leaders, you know, lay the groundwork for having a, a conversation. And, and we're seeing the opposite takes place. And I think that that's what's being in, uh, reflected in the markets now. Very aggressive tone from Trump and, and leaders who previously had tried, you know, appeasement and, and being kind of Trump whisperer and, and trying to see if they could get him on board. They're realizing that that hasn't, hasn't worked. And so the gloves are coming off. And now the other G7 countries are retaliating and responding with, with their own language. So, as you say, it'll be the first meeting in, in many years uh, where, where we'll probably see some fireworks and we'll be looking closely at the final communique and the body language leading up to that, that so, uh, final communique. So, Andrew, I, I imagine we're going to see fireworks, but as you know better than anyone else um, in, our, in our team at Bloomberg, that noise and news are two very different things. Um, and over the last 24 hours, and I imagine over the next 24 hours, we have heard a lot of news, a, a lot of noise, a lot of bluster. And I just wonder, will it be all about mood music and optics, or will we actually have some news to deal with at the other side of the summit? Well, I think the I think the worry is not that we're going to have news at the end of it, but the, that we're not going to have news. And and what I mean by that is, you know, usually the G7, all the countries by now will have will have be like eighty percent on the draft of the final communique. They'll be talking about every period, every comma, every word, and and having having this kind of consensus where you come out of the summit and you have an agreement that you communicate to the world, and you say we the G7 united, you know, believe X Y Z. That that's not happening. Uh, you know, we're we're seeing the opposite. We're seeing, you know, it may be a lot of noise, but we're not seeing them come yeah. um, come together. And 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 that's sort of important because what you're going to have at the end of this at the, at the end of this agreement is either going to be, you know, a G6 plus one, which which may be about as good as it gets, but but it could even be worse than that. It could be that there is zero statement, and that Trudeau has to come out and kind of recap and and say you know what he thinks happens, and then you have all the different countries come out and, and put their spin on it, and and from a market's point of view that that may be the worst the worst uh, you know the worst case. No agreement. Everybody's pushing their own thing, and and we leave the G7. Yeah. 
uh, with, with nothing to stop this this uh, global trade war from from uh, getting worse. Okay, so it's tit for tat. I get that the president. I mean, I'm going to essentially call it transactional bluster. Does Europe have a bluster as they come to Chavois? Well, you remember in the in the past in the, in the in the past sanctions, Europe was very quick to respond, and they were very targeted yeah. response. Like they knew exactly, you know, who to hit, how to hit, how to hurt the Republicans. And you've got the midterms coming up, and and you have to assume that all the the, the other G6 yeah, members. Yeah, I know, but are they going to bluster, Andrew? I don't sense that there'll be any bluster. They're just going to show up. They're going to act diplomatic, and then tit for tat will click in, right? Well, that's what we've seen so far, and 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 you're right. I mean, the the, the bluster's there, but but Europe has shown that it's willing to retaliate. It's willing to meet Trump head on when it comes to the tariffs, yeah. and you know we we've I seen mean, that, and there's nothing to suggest that that's not going to continue. I mean, John, help me here. I think you're better at this. You and Andrew, Andrew, with decades of work on this, and and you as well. I mean, Merkel is a physicist from East Germany, who grew up, I believe, under some serious duress. She's got to be looking at this sideshow, this carnival act, and going, you know, we're just going to go up to Quebec. We're going to make decisions. Yeah. And then we're going to go back and put an import tax on Budweiser. But Chancellor Merkel understands the importance of international diplomacy and, and integration. I, I get that, Andrew. And I'm not trying to demean that. We all understand how important the last several decades have been for global peace. But in terms of the G7 agreement, has it ever been worth the paper it's written on? In recent years, and, and we can fold in the G20 communique into that question as well, Andrew, because over the last several years, I see a lot of people agreeing on stuff on paper and then going back <clears throat> home and doing very different things. Well, look, I had this conversation yesterday with John Curtin from the G7 Research Group. And, and I mean, this is all he does. He's been studying this for, for decades now. And he says in the history of the G7, you've really only had one meeting where the world was worse off because of the G7. And, you know, that that possibility is back yeah. on the table, which is something that you have to worry about. I mean, you've always had these statements, but you know, that you can argue to what, to what extent they've, were the, they've made the world a better place, but there has been some incremental progress, and yeah. you have gotten people to kind of agree to certain commitments and move in a certain direction. Yeah. But if you're not putting anybody on that track, then yeah, you have to agree, you know, what, what are we going to get out of this? Andrew Barden, thank you so much. Brilliant today. Just greatly appreciate it from Quebec uh, and these important G7 meetings. Should we talk Brazil? Okay. Gabriela Santos joining us from JP Morgan. Asset management, global market strategist, very confused, wondering what on earth is going on in this studio. Um, Gabby, let's just talk about Brazil. Brazil are intervening in the FX market without much success at the moment. Um, EM is under some significant stress, I would say, relative to how it has been in the last year. Why aren't they hiking interest rates? Mm -hmm. So let's think about why Brazil is under pressure right now. I would say two things. The first is the broad U.S. dollar strength. Um really since mid-April, and Brazil's seen as a bit vulnerable to that given its very large fiscal deficit. So that's one thing. Central bank hiking actually exacerbates that problem. Uh, the second reason Brazil's under pressure right now is because the investment thesis is falling apart for this year. Growth has been slashed, uh, growth expectations, and there's more of a probability of an, shall we say, non-business friendly candidate win in October. 
central bank hiking actually doesn't fix either of those problems either. So they are pushing back against this narrative that raising rates is going to fix any of the problems, perhaps even exacerbate them. And let's remember that inflation in Brazil is actually very, very low at the moment. So just to discuss EM more broadly, there are calls for help from emerging markets, from the central bank governor of Indonesia, the central bank governor of the RBI in India, Urjit Patel, essentially asking the Fed to do something. But the do something is interesting to me because it's not slow down rate hikes. It's slow down the pace of balance sheet reduction. Why is balance sheet reduction so important to EM right now in a way that maybe some people didn't anticipate? I'm not sure that that I would agree that it is necessarily because for emerging markets in the past, higher rates in the United States in and of themselves have not been a problem because rates are rising balance sheet is coming down because the economy is doing well. That's a good thing for emerging markets. So honestly, the trouble we're here we're having right now is not interest rate in and of itself related. It's dollar strength related. And that's much more a function of some risk aversion that we've been seeing over the past few months. So I'm not sure what the Fed can do here necessarily. The data just has to come through in terms of uh, economies outside. It, of the it US. makes you wonder if that's the case, then why are the central bank governors of India and Indonesia and other as well asking for this help if you're saying it's not as critical. I mean, the Urjit Patel, the governor of the RBI, essentially was warning of a dollar liquidity crisis yeah, because yeah, of balance and, sheet and, reduction. And, and I agree, John, you're correct to bring up India. I thought those were very important comments. You know, given the EM mix, there's not been enough talk about India. This and week. using the word crisis, yeah. it, it just seems yeah. it just seems a lot to me. Um, we've, like you said, had a big move over the last month. It's been kind of calm over the last year. Actually, sentiment around emerging markets from investors on the buy side has been incredibly good, um, to be honest with you. From our what our I've sentiment heard. is still good on emerging so, markets. So just walk me through why these central bank governors are so worried right now. I'm, I'm not particularly sure. Um, I think perhaps it harkens memories, right, of that tough period for emerging markets from 2011 up until 2016. But let's think about the fact that we're not in that place anymore. Growth is improving. That's what drives capital flows to emerging markets in the medium term. <clears throat> Earnings are improving. Vulnerabilities are right. better. Commodity prices are higher, and the list goes on and on But and simply on. within the J.P. Morgan world, is it the same financial structures of EM as it was crisis to crisis, back to crisis, back to crisis, back? Or truly is this time different where it's a new EM, which is more resilient in liquidity, and resilient insolvency. Is that the official line? That is our, our view uh, from our side. Um, I would say there's a lot of focus on the outliers here when it comes to countries which still have very large current account deficits and thus are very exposed to any sort of ebbs and flows in terms of liquidity. That would be a Turkey and an Argentina. There are some extreme outliers in terms of U.S. dollar debt, uh, taking up a large share of, of debt. That's an Argentina example as well. But those are outliers. In, in terms of emerging markets as a whole, it's a much, much better, yeah. uh, much more resilient picture. Well, very good. Thank you. Gabriel Santos, <laughs> J.P. Morgan. Now with Stephen Major, Steve Major of HSBC. Steve, are rates high or on a relative basis, do you look at them as still low? 
US rates are too high in the forwards. I doubt the Fed will get anywhere near where they think they're going to go. Well, if it doesn't happen in the next few months, I'll be very surprised. They will choke on the additional rate hikes. And I, I imagine two more would be enough. Um, uh, two, two more gets us to 225. The, the thing is, the, the idea that the Fed could just close their eyes and keep hiking all the way to 3% or 325 without there being some massive event, I think is naive. Uh, uh, there's been many, many surprises in the last month. And I think that we are seeing a, a regime shift in the risky asset markets. Look at all the incidents that keep popping up in EM. It's not a coincidence that the common denominator is the vicious tightening of financial conditions. Now, I, I can't believe that people don't recognize this because they're looking at outdated financial conditions indices. And really, you, you've got to look at this in a more holistic way. The Fed is increasing rates, they're shrinking the balance sheet, and the US Treasury is rejuvenating cash as an asset class. That is a yeah. massive tightening. Um, the last time we had this kind of tightening of financial conditions associated with low unemployment and looser fiscal policy, the last time this happened England won the World Cup uh, that, that's football for Tom's benefit and by football oh, I mean uh, thank uh, you uh, Steve's, uh, um, Steve's an East London guy West Ham fan but yeah West Ham won the World Cup for England actually so so in 1966 England won the football World Cup and it's 50 years 52 years ago so in 1966 you will remember there was a very strong tightening of credit conditions and what happened afterwards wasn't very nice and, and from the UK perspective, we had the 1967 yeah. devaluation, of course. Yeah. Um, but um, you can read the St. Louis Fed 1966 paper. It's a paper about 1966 written by the St. Louis Fed that talks about the strong tightening of financial conditions. So I think it's naive to look at, say, the IOER or the Fed funds rate and so say they haven't tightened So, Steve, much. that's what I was going to ask you about, actually, because you've, yeah. you've mentioned a couple of things. You've talked about regime change, one, and also this yeah. tightening of financial conditions. I think for some listeners, they'll be looking at financial conditions and thinking things are still easy. So what are you looking at, Steve? What are the indicators well, that you think people should pay attention to? Well, what could possibly be wrong about the idea that financial conditions are loose? So if you look at this, if you look at the Fed's indices, and there's a Bloomberg index as well, isn't there? There's a global index right. of Bloomberg. Bloomberg. Bloomberg has one, I think it's got 10 or 11 components. The, again, the St. Louis Fed, by the way, has a 17-component <coughs> financial conditions index. These these are tighter than they were in any time in the last 12 months, I think. But on, on, in the context of the last 10 years, they're still loose. I suggest that they're picking up the wrong thing. So so in these indices, you've got things like the S&P, the VIX, and the FRA OAS, and this kind of stuff. The thing to me, to me is that financial conditions for, Tur for Turkish corporates who are issuing in dollars, they are tight. For Chinese real estate companies who are coming to roll some bonds they issued a few years ago, they're also tight. For the Italian sovereign, financial conditions are about to get very tight too. It seems to me... That if you look around the world, you go and ask a Japanese bank how it is to borrow dollars in the open market. It, you know, there's a lot of different institutions in different parts of the world will tell you that financial conditions are getting very tight. And of course, the Fed looks at things globally. Sometimes they have to be whacked on the head, and, and it might be that a strong dollar would do it for them. Yeah. Um, the, the, the facts are quite simple. In the last five or six years, I think the Fed's been distracted from its expected tightening path by China twice, Greece at least once, and even the UK around Brexit. So stuff happens. 
they get distracted or or they get deflected off the tightening path. And I think it's sort of happening. You, you know, in, in, in May, I, I read um, my colleague uh, David Bloom's piece about May. His, his team, they put together a descriptive piece about what happened last month. And do you know, in the month of May, you've got stories around Argentina, India, Brazil, yep. obviously Malaysia, most recently Italy and Turkey. They're, they're, and I've forgotten more than I can remember here. Uh, th then there's all the big set-piece global <clears throat> things like trade wars and uh, nuclear deals and uh, Iran and North Korea. Oh, there's so much stuff going on. That was one of the most volatile months we've had in modern times. Just because the VIX doesn't show it doesn't mean to say it wasn't volatile. It's a really good point, Steve. So it gets to, the, it gets to an important question. You've talked about regime change and regime shift. Yeah. What's the new regime and what does well, it mean okay. for markets? Look, I, I, my, my regime change comment isn't just some assertion. It's based on how the term premium has decoupled from the level of yields. Now, I wrote a paper about this that was published at the beginning of the week with yeah. my colleagues, and this is really important. During the last 15 years, we've been in a QE regime. It's 15 years, not 10, because when Ben Bernanke wrote that paper, Deflation, Make Sure It Doesn't Happen Here, in 2002, the Greenspan Fed actually were expected to implement some of Bernanke's policies in 2003. It didn't happen, but the market yeah. bought into the idea they were going to do it. So by the rumour, sell the fact. Ever since then, we've had we've got six occurrences of bullish flattening followed by yeah. bearish steepening. Suddenly it changed because the Fed yeah. is hiking. It all changed, right? So so this yeah. is scary. They're going to flip the curve over. Steve, always great to catch up with you, mate. We'll speak Wonderful. soon. Very Steve valuable. Major, very Thank thoughtful, so always valuable. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. Managing Director, Global Head of Global Fixed Income Research over at HSBC and joining us out of, out of London. Right now we get clarity on the economics of our time as this G7 meeting occurs and we do that with Stephen Rusciuto. He is with Masuno. Stephen, wonderful to have you with us. We heard the president there and any number of themes. How does trade fold into the economic growth of the world economy? Well, I mean, it, you know, you, you think it's a zero-sum game, but in reality, it's not. Um, the reality is there are places which are more efficient at producing products than there are places that aren't efficient at producing products. And the whole concept of free trade is to allow that to develop. And I think the, the, the point that is trying to be driven home in here is that it's not about free trade. It's about fair trade. And there is this concept that tariffs are erected in different places to protect different industries. And this is a nationalist thing that every country does. And I think for many, many years, the United States, because it was the largest, most powerful nation in the world, um, and used a lot of our willingness to trade with people as a carrot in order to get them to do political things that we were wishing them to do mm -hmm. uh, in supporting us. And now there's a bit of a pushback, given the change in the world order that is brought about by the fact that China is so powerful now. Well, and I think it is a recognition of that fundamental change. The president, and I think there's some value there. Uh, Steve Rusciuto, the president, with some comments there, you know, thinking about pardoning uh, Mohammed Ali, but one of them was to bring Russia back in from the G7 to the G8, which brings up that IMF-like debate of what to do with China. 
Should we right. should we leg out here to a G8, a G9, a G10? I, I would almost come up that you might as well just bring it down to a much smaller group than that. Um, you know, you should focus in on a really new G3, uh, and that could be something as narrow as the United States, Germany, um, and China. And those three are really the dominant issues here, because the problem with Europe, and Europe has not been able to get itself moving, is the fact that there is a un- certain degree of unfair trade practices that goes on within Europe, um, and Germany does not contribute its fair share back out to the rest of Europe. Um, and that needs to be addressed. And the same thing is yeah. true with China and other areas. So, yeah, the reality is those are the three things you've got to focus on. Those are the three countries that have to get together and decide how this yeah. is all going to get done. The rest of it really just falls into place around those three. Off the bloom. I can figure this out, folks. Let's list the G7 countries because Steve Rusciuto gives us a clinic. Canada, the host, France, Germany, the United Kingdom, Japan, Mr. Abe with the president uh, yesterday, Italy, and then there's the United States as well. I mean, it really is a dated organization, Steve, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, that, and that's part of the problem. And that's one of the reasons why you have this fractured behavior. And I think you also have to keep in mind, at the same time that this G7 discussion is going on, you've got the UK leaving the EU. You've got potential problems within Europe with regard to Italy and mm-hmm. Spain. Um, and this goes directly back to the, to the German situation. And you have a very, very yeah. aggressive China on the other side of the equation. And that all this infighting going on really distracts mm-hmm. things from the more important issue, which is China. And that's what I think, you know, the value that comes out of this, I hope, will be a refocusing of the decision to where, of the discussions to where they need to take place. Good morning on Sirius XFM. Uh, I'll get it out. Sirius XM Channel 119 across the great Midwest. Steve, one of the constant themes of analysis this morning, whether Greg Vellier at Horizon or Mike Allen over at Axios, is Midwestern Republicans really upset with their president about these tariffs. What is the tit-for-tat agriculture angle with Germany, with France and England? I get it with China, but is there an agriculture angle across the Atlantic? Well, I don't think there is an agricultural agenda off the Atlantic, across the Atlantic, but I think there is certainly with regard to Canada, and I think there certainly is with regard to Mexico that, that, that can be addressed and how things come up through South America, through Mexico. So, I mean, I think that's where you get back into the NAFTA. <clears throat> Keep in mind, he's attacking, I mean, I'm not trying to support Trump other than saying that I think the America first concept is the right concept. Now, how you go about executing it, yeah. we can all argue with and discuss, but the America first concept is a valid concept. He may not be approaching it properly, but all these specific trade deals that have yeah. been done have been done based on an idea that the United States is the largest, most powerful nation in the world, and we have to use our strength to help pull up other places uh, in order to keep the world in a more stable, yeah. peaceful environment. That dynamic no longer exists. Well, one more question into Wax Philosophical here is he's talking about 270% milk tariffs uh, on Canada. You know, you're protecting your cows, you're protecting your farmers. I get all that. All I could remember, Steve, was reading about feta cheese in the trade battle between Greece and Bulgaria over can the Bulgarians say feta cheese? And this is like a serious EU debate. So bring that over here to the trade that we have today. I mean, consumers worldwide really don't care anymore, do they? 
I mean, to the great extent, prices have been stabilized and prices have been held back. Consumers are much more interested in the job aspect, the wage aspect yeah. that comes okay. out of this at this particular juncture. And the reality is, given the imbalances in trade, as simple mathematics, if you reverse that trade deficit, how many jobs are you going to create? Yeah, that's that simple. Steve, thank you so much. Steve Rusciotto of Mizzou on duty there. Abby Joseph Cohen of Goldman Sachs. We do not care what the stock market is going to do. Abby, very quickly here, the Washington Capitals finally done. Your thoughts on Mr. Ovechkin lifting that Stanley Cup? I was, of course, delighted to see Mr. Ovechkin lift that Stanley Cup as a longtime Caps fan. But I have to say, this was going to be a Cinderella Stanley Cup final, regardless of which team yeah. won. I mean, the, uh, the the Vegas team was wonderful. They had a fabulous season, really record-breaking. Mark Andre Fleury also was simply outstanding yeah. uh, in all these games. Uh, but to see Ovechkin. Um, lift that Stanley Cup was thrilling, but I'll tell you what was more thrilling, and that was the handshake line at the yes, end. Yes, always. Where, where the two teams greeted each other, not just in a polite manner, but there were warm hugs and sincere right. congratulations. Make America Great Again is a zeitgeist right now, Ms. Cohen. And the basic idea here is the Washington Capitals are as international as you get. Ovechkin from Russia, T.J. Oshie from Everett, uh, Washington State, Bruce Orpik from uh, uh, from San Francisco, and of course Holtby from Saskatchewan. That's the spirit that's missing in our trade debate, isn't it? Absolutely. And to quote the line from Hamilton, immigrants, they get the job done. Um, and one of the things that's so great to see about hockey and some of our other professional sports as well is the international flavor. But let's forget it's mm -hmm. not just that industry. There are so many others in the United States where we have benefited immensely from our immigrant right. population. Abby Joseph Cohen, 30 seconds. Your view of the equity markets Dow, 25,000. Can you own equities at this point? I think equities um, are at roughly fair value right now. Um, we may have already seen the highs of, of the year uh, for the S&P and, and the Dow based upon our analysis of earnings and cash mm -hmm. flow. What I do worry about is that when you're at fair value, um, there can be mistakes. Uh, and there can be mistakes, for example, in policy. Uh, government policy. There can also be disappointing reports. Right. So I think we need to be very careful. We're now in a period where it's not just the rising tide. You really have to select the ship properly. Abby Joseph Cohen, thank you so much on the equity markets and on her Washington uh, Capitals. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.